know. And so he writes to these believers to say, let's talk about hope. Let's talk about a kingdom to come so that we can endure the present suffering that we have in our life now. Now, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he starts off saying to these believers, suffering believers, he said, I want to talk about hope and the hope we have is alive. And the reason it's a living hope is because it's based on the resurrection. Now, this is very real to me. Most of this message is is so much from my life experience. Uh, And this passage was used significantly in my life because there was a point in our life, the lowest point of our life, where I entered into a suffering greater than I'd ever known before. And that was during the time in 2005 uh, when our son was killed in Afghanistan. This is a picture of him. This is our son, Brett. We have, uh, beside Eric and Sarah, we have our two, uh, two sons and two daughters. And this son, Brett, who Eric actually had spent some good time with in relationship and discipleship, uh, was in his senior year in college at Indiana University in Bloomington. And he had joined the Army National Guard his senior year of high school. And his senior year in college, he was deployed to Afghanistan. And uh, while there, he was on a mission, driving uh, for the officers, with officers in the mission. And uh, they went over a landmine, and it killed him and three other Indiana men instantly. Uh, he went to home to be with Jesus in a matter of seconds as the uh, landmine thrust him through the windshield of his vehicle, and uh, he was gone instantly. Now, uh, Brett was very special to me. All my kids are, but uh, he was very special. He loved Jesus. He joined a fraternity in college so they could have a ministry, and he was leading the house fraternity Bible study um, up until the time he was deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, had a terrific impact for Christ. He, uh, when we returned home and had a memorial service, um, so we talked to some of his fraternity brothers, and all 100 of them came to his memorial service where I was able to share the gospel. Uh, but 30 of them showed up at the house Bible study the Wednesday night. He was killed on a Saturday morning. 30 of them showed up on uh, Wednesday night, and they sat around the room, and each one shared the difference and the impact Brett had made in their life helping them learn about Jesus. These are guys who'd come to Christ as well as guys who weren't believers yet. So he was a special kid. He, uh, he loved the Lord. He was fun. He was social. Uh, in many ways of, my, of our four biological kids, he was the one most like me, really good looking, you can tell. Uh, but he was actually going to do the same thing I'm doing, and that is work with college students. He was going to come on crew staff and uh, each of my kids is unique, has their own unique passion and way of serving the Lord. He was going to come on crew staff. He was really fun. In fact, he's so fun. I want to show you a little video clip um, just to give you an idea what this guy's like. Uh, this little video clip is only 15 seconds. He made this when he and his uh, friends were in their room at our winter conference that crew has. And they were just in the room messing around, having a good time. And they made up this little video for fun. So check this out. 
but we have no volume. York, Dave, and Hirsch, you're about to see something you've never seen before. Ah! Ready? Go. Any dogs in the house? Any dogs in the house? What? What? Christmas conference, 2003, go. going into 2004. We're you don't need to show it twice. There you go. Some of the ladies are saying, you showed us a video in church with a bunch of dudes in boxers. What the heck is this? Some of the ladies are saying, hey, show it again. No, anyway. This is just my son, Brad. He was always doing fun and crazy things, and so he related well to guys. And as a result, he... He was a steward of who God created him to be to have an impact in other guys' lives spiritually. Now, here's the deal, though. Look at this verse again. It says, verse uh, 3, if you're looking at your Bibles, that we have a living hope through the resurrection. Now, I want to share with you when this became very real to me. Uh, I would go out to uh, the gravesite often uh, to take a lawn chair and just sit and talk with Brett uh, he never said much back to me, but I'd talk with him and because uh, my heart just longed to be with him. And uh, so I'd sit there with him sometimes for hours, and reading and talking and so forth. But there was such an agony and a, uh, a heartache in my soul. I, I remember days when I just beat on my chest and pleaded with the Lord to take me home to heaven because the pain was so agonizing, missing him so terribly. And I stood there and I... And it was at this, this time I had to review again what I have really believed and what I taught. I'd been teaching college students up to that point for 35 years about salvation, about eternal life, about the hope of heaven. And it struck me as I stood there, I said, wow, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because if, if the resurrection is true, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, if he was really God in the flesh, and if he really died on that cross, and he really rose from the dead, then my son is with him now, and I will see him again in heaven. But if it's not true, if I've believed the lie, then he is rotting in that box. That's it. He is in absolute nothingness, and the moment I die, I will slip into absolute nothingness and will rot in a box. That's my alternatives. Of course, that's the the naturalistic, atheistic, philosophical naturalism worldview is that when you die, there is nothing after that. We are nothing but molecules, right? Biological substance is all we are. We have no immaterial being. That's what the philosophical natural worldview says today. And we hold a worldview that says, no, that's not true. We, are, we have an immaterial soul and that we will pass on to be with Jesus in heaven at our death. So that day, I had to stand there and say, wow, I need to make a decision. Am I going to continue to teach what I've taught for the last 35 years? Do I believe the resurrection is true? And so, and I commend this to you. What was helpful to me, I went out and pulled books off the shelf that I'd read 20 years before. I went back into all evidences for the faith. I, I knew I believed because the Bible said it was true, but sometimes when the pain in our life is overwhelming, are you with me? Do you ever question your faith? When you see horrible suffering that you can't explain, you experience it, you don't understand, Lord, why? But I know for me, the enemy of my soul used that to cause me to say, do I really trust this is true? Because what I'm experiencing here doesn't make any sense at all. 
And so I needed to go back and, and re- revisit, why do I trust this book? Am I going to stake my life on this book in spite of experiences that I can't explain, in spite of pain that just doesn't go away? And I went back and I read those books. What are the evidences for the resurrection? What are the evidences for why I believe God exists? What are the evidences for why this is trustworthy? We call them apologetics. And so I commend to you, you know, there's reasons why we continue to walk with Jesus. And some people say, well, I just walk by faith because I believe the Bible's true, and that's good. But I want to suggest bolster your mind by engaging your mind in those evidences, whether they be from philosophy, science, whatever, to bolster your faith because the enemy of your soul will try to undergird your faith when you have experiences in life which are just very difficult to understand. Are you with me on this? I think you know what I mean. And so I did, and I came to the conclusion, you know what? I'm going to stand in my faith. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence is there. I'm going to continue to stake my life on what this book says. But it was a crisis. I spent two years of my life wrestling with the Lord, wondering, are you good? Do you care? Why would you allow my precious son, who loved you so much, to be taken? And I still can't say answer why. I just say, I don't know why, but I will trust him. But that didn't come without two years of struggle and wrestling. All right. Let's go back to the verse, or go on to verse 4, if you would. So we have a living hope, and it's rooted in the resurrection. And what comes with that living hope? Out of that living hope, out of the resurrection, he says this, we're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, a word about inheritance. Because of the resurrection, we are guaranteed, Peter says, an inheritance. Now, the Jews would have understood, because the Old Testament writers spoke about the inheritance a lot, and the inheritance for them was a physical land. It was the land of Canaan, right? When he speaks, when you see this written, as it is many times throughout the New Testament, that we will receive inheritance, it's a spiritual inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, Paul says we are co-heirs with Christ. You're familiar with that, right? Because we're his children, we are co-heirs. We will inherit all that Christ will inherit. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of when Jesus will be given the kingdom that is eternal And we will reign, this is the great news, we will reign with Christ in an eternal spiritual kingdom. But it's not just a spiritual kingdom, it's a literal physical kingdom on earth. Let me share with you Matthew 25, and I don't have this on PowerPoint, I'm just sharing these. Listen to Matthew 25, 31 and 34. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come ye who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I love that word inheritance that's throughout the New Testament, that we are going to inherit a kingdom. We are going to inherit the kingdom with Jesus. Now, when we speak of kingdom, sometimes there's confusion because we read in the Gospels that Jesus, when he came at his first coming, says the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the theological expression you've perhaps heard is the kingdom is here is already here and not yet, right? Eric's taught you all that. He's taught you everything, right? Of course. The kingdom's already here and not yet. So are we in the kingdom? Well, yes, the kingdom is here because Jesus reigns in your hearts and minds as king. 
and we go about working in the, for the kingdom on earth, and we bring to bear through the gospel and all manner and form that you do here at Mac Avenue to bring the values of the kingdom to bear. But the reality is the kingdom will never fully be here until Jesus the king physically returns and establishes his reign on earth as the king of a perfectly righteous, just, and peaceful kingdom here with him as king. So there's inheritance to come. Now notice it says, I want to point out a couple things. It says, notice in the end of verse 5, this inheritance, spiritual inheritance, which will be a literal inheritance on earth, is reserved in heaven for you uh, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the last time. Now, just a word about this ever so briefly. When you read about salvation throughout the New Testament, it's in three different tenses. We have been saved already, right? We've been justified. We have been saved. Next slide, if you would. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. I I know you know this. Obviously what Peter's talking about here in this context is he's talking about that future salvation. That one day we will be saved from the presence of sin, finally and completely glorified in his presence, in his kingdom. Now, um, look at the passage again. It says it's reserved in heaven for you. And often there's a lot of confusion about what does the scripture mean by heaven? You know, I speak to college students all the time. And quite honestly, when I ask the question, how many of you are excited about going to heaven? Or how many are you just excited about heaven? A lot of them don't raise their hand. Some do. Ashley does. You're excited about it. But some do. And I say, why? And I say, well, because their view of heaven is what? Is that, what's the typical view of heaven? We're going to sing around the throne forever and ever, a million billion years, keep singing the same song. Now, I love to worship, but oh my gosh, really? Can we sing that many songs for that? And that's all we think about. Or we think about what? We're playing a harp, floating on a cloud. You know what I mean? We're playing a harp. And, you know, that just doesn't necessarily grab the soul that much. I mean, again, harps are probably cool. Never played one, but floating on a cloud. Interesting, Jesus didn't say in John 14 when he said the disciples, you know, he's giving them comfort. He said, I go away to prepare a cloud for you. He didn't say that. He said, I go away to prepare a place for you. Now, just, just a brief word about heaven. Uh, won't go into a whole long thing. I, like, I speak about this a lot um, uh, briefly. Um, in fact, I was reading, are you familiar with Randy Alcorn? You know his book? Randy Alcorn is maybe, I think, the best writer about the subject of heaven, at least in the last several decades. And I, in his one book uh, called Heaven, it's the name of it, it's about this thick, okay, it's a big, thick book. I was in the middle of reading it when our son was killed. I was reading about heaven. He does one of, I think, the best biblical exegesis I've seen anywhere on heaven, any, of any writers. But he makes the point that heaven um, is not floating on a cloud, that heaven is on a new earth. Now, when you look at this verse, it says, reserved in heaven for you. Where is that? Well, obviously, and Bible scholars use the term, there's obviously right presently what we call an intermediate heaven, that those who have already died are with Jesus right now. In, 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 in their, in, within their soul and their spirit. They're with him. Paul talked about to, you know, to die is gain, to, it's better to be with Christ, uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So we know that the moment someone in this life dies, they go to be with Jesus. 
though it's not clear where that exactly is and what dimension, but it is. But what the heaven I think he's talking about here, because it's the salvation revealed in the last days, is the heaven that's on a new earth. Now, you can read about this a lot if you, if you desire in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation. 21 and 22 talk about the new heaven, new earth. And when Randy Alcorn writes in his book, he's making the case that often we've heard the expression, well, you really can't know much about heaven. Eye has not seen their ear as third. And they, we've heard things God has prepared for those who love him. And we quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the context of that is not, or two, excuse me. But that's not really, he's not really in that context talking about what heaven's like. Here in Revelation 21, he says this. I want to just read this briefly. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall dwell among them. So here's the reality. The heaven that Peter's talking about here that we look forward to is a heaven on a new earth, right? That at the return of Christ, he is going to restore the earth to be what God originally intended it to be. That we are going to be, and you know this, we're going to be in glorified bodies like Jesus was after the resurrection. When you read about this more extensively in Revelations, it says things like we're going to serve him. Meaning we're going to be involved in meaningful work, meaningful service on a new earth. And very possibly some of the passions and gifts that you enjoy most now, you will live out and express more fully than you ever have in this life because you'll be uninhibited by sin. So we'll live on a new earth in glorified bodies. We'll serve Christ. We indeed will sing around the throne. That is clear in Revelation. But we're going to do more now. In fact, it also says we're going to reign with Christ. When he reigns as the king over the whole earth, the scripture says we who are faithful in our lifetime here will reign with him. Now, all kinds of things. You know, one of my favorite things to talk about, you know, of course, that we're going to eat in heaven. You know that, right? On a new earth. So how do I know that? The marriage supper of the lamb, Revelation chapter 19. You can look at it, right? It's the wedding supper. You know what you do at a wedding party. Everybody's been to a wedding, right? So what do you do at a wedding reception? You eat and you sing and you dance and you're celebrating the bride and the bridegroom, right? So the marriage supper of the, lamb, of the Lamb is the all-time greatest wedding reception ever. We're going to be celebrating with people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, dancing. Last night, the wedding we were at, it was an Indian, young Indian man married a, a young American gal, and it was a beautiful, we just stood there, and we watched Indians dancing together with all these other Caucasians and a few African-American folks, a few Asians folk, and said, oh my, this is a little taste of heaven. Because people were dancing and celebrating, and they were celebrating with the bride and the bridegroom. The marriage supper of the Lamb is when people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation will worship, will dance, will sing, will shout, and will be celebrating the king who has been crowned as the king, and we are his bride. And what a party that is going to be. And uh, that fires me up just a little bit. I think you can tell that kind of motivates me. Now, no, just a word, go on to back to these verses. Notice he says things about uh, what our inheritance is going to be like, and I only mention these briefly. He says, uh, verse 4 again, 
we're going to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. So he gives little snippets of description. Now, I want to mention the three of them. The first one is imperishable. I want to say briefly, it's imperishable. And it's imperishable because now what we experience in this life is everything dies. No escape. Everything dies. I love this verse in chapter 4 of Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. You know, I thought I'd experienced pain in life until the day I stood beside the coffin of my son. The shearing, agonizing pain that ripped through my soul that day, I'd never tasted before. Some of you know what that pain is. You've lost a loved one. So when it talks about that our inheritance one day is imperishable, there will be no more death, no more watching a grandparent suffer through Alzheimer's, losing a parent to cancer, no more attending a funeral of a friend who was killed in a car accident. No more death. Death has been defeated and done away with. Now, the scripture also says, and the next slide is undefiled. It's undefiled. And we know what that means. Right now, in, this, in our life here, everything is corrupted by sin. We know that. We experience that every day. We experience the corruption, the defilement of sin in every way, in our own hearts, in our own relationships. We see it in institutions. We see it in the, in the racism that's pervaded this country for hundreds of years. Uh, we see it everywhere the corruption of sin in the human heart. And so we legislate and we educate and we do our best to make a change. But foremost, we got to bring the gospel because only Jesus can change the heart. We know this, the heart that's filled with hate. And one day in this new heaven and new earth, there'll be no more corruption. It's been changed. I give you verses here. We're not going to look at them, but we're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to have a whole new character. Romans 8. All of creation will be restored. What's really fun, if you compare Revelation 21 and 22 to Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see that the two chapters bookend the whole Bible. And all the corruption and defilement of sin that began in Genesis 1 and 2 and has corrupted and defiled life for us ever since, in 21 and 22 is all undone. God is going to take this earth corrupted, polluted by sin, and make it brand new. Uh, we were in a zoo last weekend. We took a couple of our other grandsons, three of our grandsons to the zoo. And we're going around looking at all these animals in cages. And I said to my wife, this can't be what they were created for. To be caged up. We watched these beautiful lions. And I'm, I'm a Penn State grad, so I like lions, especially Nittany lions. But I'm watching these lions with nothing to do but lay there in a cage all day long. And that's I said to my wife, you know, one day when Jesus comes, every animal will be set free. All of creation, Romans 8, Romans 8 says, all of creation is now groaning under the weight of sin. And all of creation will be set free. And those lions, we will dance around, jump around. I'm going to have my own pet lion. Personally, I already asked the Lord for a pet lion. Yeah. So, hey, here's the last thing, unfading. 
unfading. It says that inheritance will be unfading. Meaning what? Right now, everything is temporary. All glory that this world offers us is temporary. Now, you know this. You know this because you live in Detroit and you've had sports teams. And when was the last team that won a world championship? Distant. Distant. <laughs> Pistons were the, were the Pistons the last one? Not the Red Wings or the Tigers? I don't know. But here's the thing about sports, right? You win a world championship, the Pistons won it, and then the Red Wings, and it's exciting, it's glorious, right? You have a parade right down the middle of the street, and it's, wow, this is great! And then what, two days later? Two days later, the glory's gone. Sports Illustrated Illustrated will write one article on the Red Wings, right? And we'll be excited, and then it's over. And that's true about everything. If you've ever been a part of a sports championship or a musical production or theater production, you've ever done anything, quote, glorious, right? You know how quickly it fades away. That's earthly glory. So this glory, when Jesus Christ comes out of heaven, I, there, uh, there's a movie series I love, The Lord of the Rings. Have you seen it? Well, there's a scene in there that I show often. I don't have it this morning, but where uh, Gandalf comes riding out of, off the mountain on his white horse. And Aragorn, he told Aragorn, look for me in the morning, the fifth day, right? And the orcs had overwhelmed Helm's Deep. Thousands of them were about to destroy Aragorn and Legolas and all the boys, right? And Gandalf comes riding up on that white horse over the hill with all the armies of heaven. And he comes riding in to defeat all the, uh, all the enemies of the kingdom. And it's a great scene. And it's a picture of Revelation 19. And that's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. And a picture when Jesus comes in his glory as our king, all the armies of heaven with him, and he will defeat all wickedness and evil, and all injustice will be done away with, and Jesus will reign as the king, and every knee will bow all across the earth to the king. And we will shout and praise and dance, and we'll go serve with the king and reign. Isn't that great? Now that's, and he'll usher us into an eternal kingdom of glory. And that's what we look forward to. Now, while we're here, we engage. We take the gospel. We penetrate in our culture to make a difference. But it's always still with the, with the reality in our soul that all that we do will finally only be consummated at the return of the king. Right? All right, look at the last thing. Look at verse... Uh, I don't know where we are. Okay, verse 6. Yeah, verse 6. Here we go. In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, I'm reading out a New American Standard, I know this is ESV. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? He says what you take joy in and rejoice in is all that we just talked about, in the eternal inheritance that's undefiled and all the rest. That's what we rejoice in, even though now for a little while we have various trials. Um, Now, that little while he's talking about is that little while. Often, when I try to illustrate how that little while, if you put it this way, if I draw out an eternal timeline on a piece of paper representing all eternity, I ask the question, how do I represent my 70 years of life on an eternal timeline? What is it? It's a little dot. Say it with me. My little life is a dot between two vast eternities. So Peter says, during our little dot, we suffer many trials, but we are rejoicing in the hope that the eternal kingdom to come 
will fill the longing of our soul for his glory and for righteousness and justice and peace. Now, verse 7. He says, right now, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, and that's another whole topic. It is necessary. If necessary, yeah, because trials serve a purpose in our life. As much as we don't like them, they have a purpose, right? This is the verse, one of them, that the Lord significantly used in my life when I was going through the two years of wrestling over the loss of my son. Verse 7. It says, you're going through these trials for this little while so that, watch this, verse 7, the proof of your faith or the genuineness of your faith, tested genuineness of your faith, may result in something. Now watch this. Skip down to the verb. The subject is the genuine faith, and it results in something. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what I realized as this verse, the Lord used this over and over again. I kept going back to this. And I kept saying, you know, Lord, this, I'm, what I'm going through right now is a test. Is my faith genuine? I've declared that I will trust you for previous 35 years, but let's face it, life's been pretty good. I have four great kids, I've had a wonderful ministry, I had the privilege of working with guys like Eric. Life was good. And all of a sudden, I'm in the midst of the worst trial of my life, and I had a decision to make. And I had to ask the question, has my faith been genuine? Or have I said, well, I'll follow Jesus because he makes everything good. And of course, during this time, I I studied through the book of Job. I went through lots of things, but I studied through the book of Job, and you're familiar with it. And the simple reality that Job never knew why he was in that trial before. And even after God took him out of the trial and restored his blessings, God still never told him what the purpose of the trial was. We know it for our benefit. He did not know it. But Job had to make the decision, which was this, which is what caught my eye as I studied it. And Job said, Lord, I trusted you in prosperity. Will I trust you now in adversity? And I realized, wow, that's my decision. I've trusted him in prosperity. Will I trust him now in adversity? Will I declare that he is good and he loves me and he's trustworthy, though I do not understand? Now, what I discovered through all this, notice in that verse there, verse 7, He says that the genuineness of your faith, and then he modifies, he he describes how he views faith. He says it's more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. And he's speaking here of apparently how much when we demonstrate faith, it is of value to God. In fact, our demonstrated faith, our willingness to trust him in the midst of the worst of times is more precious than gold. Our faith, our trust is like gold. And when I say our faith, that can be vague. Better said, when I declare, Lord, I will trust you, that you love me, you are my father, I will trust you, no matter what, that apparently is of inestimable value to God. It's like gold. But like gold, our faith, the dross is burnt away in the fires of testing. The dross is burned off, and that's what was happening in my life. The dross was being burned off in my life so that the gold could be revealed of would I trust him or not. And that dross for me included a bunch of lies in my belief system that I had embraced about what God should do for me because I follow him. Lies about what life should give me and lies about his character. And they all got exposed by the trial that I was going through. 
So I had to come away and say, will I continue to trust him? Will, is my faith genuine? Well, look at the end here. We'll wrap it up with this. I love what it says at the end of verse 7. He says, our genuine faith, when we declare we trust him, it's going to result in something. Watch the end of verse 7. Your genuine faith, so that you go through trials, your faith is tested so that it will result in praise and glory and honor. Watch this. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, is he talking about God being praised and honored and glorified? Yes, but more so he's talking about us. We are going to share in his glory, his honor, and his praise. These are references if you want to look at them. But this blows my mind. That when we we were with Jesus one day, if we have been faithful during our dot, if we have chosen to say, Lord, I'll trust you no matter what during my dot, it says that we will experience sharing in his glory in his honor, in his praise. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. That is when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom and he is glorified throughout all the earth. We who are faithful saints will share in that glory with him. That's incredible. Now I want to show you one last verse and we'll wrap it up here. Look at 1 Corinthians. Next verse there, bro. This specific verse, I love this one, 4 or 5. I committed this to memory. I love this verse. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in the darkness, will disclose the purposes of the heart. Each one will receive his praise, his commendation from God. Each one will receive his praise from the Lord. In college, I sat under the teaching about the return of Christ and specifically about the judgment seat of Christ which is this, that reality that one day we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to evaluate our life, the judgment seat of Christ. It's for believers. He's going to evaluate, have we been faithful during our dot? And he's going to give out rewards, the scripture says. There's a whole teaching in the New Testament about rewards that the king wants to give his faithful servants. But the greatest reward of which I think is as the parable of the talents teaches us when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that truth has motivated me my whole life. The hope of the return of Christ, the hope of a just and righteous kingdom, and the hope that one day when I stand before Jesus, he'll have looked at my life and he'll be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That I took the talents, the abilities, I took the person he created me to be and have been faithful with it. And I leave that with you. That's our challenge. If, if this hope of heaven is what it is, and we have this glory to look forward to, that's why Peter says in verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's so many other things we can fix our hope on, but none of them are guaranteed. So Peter says, fix your hope completely. That one day we'll share in his glory, you'll stand before Jesus and the king will be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that great? And that's the hope. That's the hope of heaven. As much as I'd like to put hope in politicians we have, at this time, there's obviously no hope. We know that. We know that. The only hope is in King Jesus. And that's, what, that's the problem, right? Any candidate put out there is so far short of what King Jesus is going to be. 
and our souls are longing to be ruled by King Jesus. And so that's why we'll never quite be satisfied, no matter who the candidate is, right? Well, let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you, Lord, that they are engaged in this community, that they are your servants in your kingdom right here, bringing the gospel here, stepping into suffering to bring justice, to bring righteousness right here, right now, because the kingdom is here. And yet we know, Lord, ultimately, we long for the day when your kingdom is completely fulfilled here in our midst and all corruption and defilement is done away with. And Jesus, you alone are praised and worshiped and that we will worship with people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Thank you, Lord. We long for that. I pray for each of us here. Holy Spirit, stir up our hearts. Stir up our hearts to live for more than anything for that day when you look into our eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let that be the driving passion of our souls. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.